with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Robohub podcast. Today we'll be hearing about the MIT Quest for Intelligence, an initiative that seeks to address two fundamental questions. Firstly, it's trying to determine how human intelligence works in engineering terms. And secondly, it's exploring how we might use our understanding of human intelligence to build smarter machines for the benefit of society. To discuss this intriguing initiative, our interviewer Lily caught up with Professor Nicholas Roy, who leads the robust robotics group in the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab at MIT. They talked about how cognitive science can inform and improve artificial intelligence as well as the capabilities of engineering tools and services, and the importance of explainable and ethical AI. Hi, welcome to RoboHub's podcast. Would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. My name is Nick Roy. I'm a professor at MIT in the Department of Aeronautics and Astronautics. I'm also a member of the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab, and I am the director of the bridge under the new AI initiative on campus, the Quest for Intelligence. Oh, wow. Can you talk a little bit about that initiative? Absolutely. So AI is obviously been a major source of research uh, focus and energy on campus for a long time, but it's largely been individual faculty working on the problems that they pick. And uh, what we're seeing right now in the world, AI is both becoming incredibly useful, incredibly popular, incredibly talked about, but we're also seeing some of the limitations of what AI can do. We're seeing systems being deployed and making mistakes or creating failures, behaving inappropriately in some cases. <laughs> and so We know that there's going to be a new form of AI coming that is more general, has better, is more competent, um, and won't be as subject to as many of these failures. And the question is, where is that next form of AI going to come from? And the hypothesis at MIT is that if we get faculty and graduate students together and give them resources to really run hard at some of the big questions um, and allow them to really focus over a sustained period of time, then perhaps we can get answers to those questions. So there's two parts to th this activity. One is can we look to the intersection of brain and computing, the intersection of our understanding of the brain and computer science to actually address the science and engineering of intelligence, really be inspired by the, by, really be inspired by how human intelligence operates. And the second thing is, can we take AI and actually deploy it across the disciplines? Can we actually uh, use AI within the labs on campus in material science, in biology, in nuclear engineering, in political science? And can we also use AI in the classroom to improve uh, you know, education and help all the non-AI students learn how to use these tools? And so it's that second part that I'm more heavily involved in, which is actually, can we build a platform of tools and services that could be used by all the students and faculty on campus? Um, you probably remember Project Athena, um, uh, which you know is sort of a bit faded into the background of uh, at MIT, but it was really designed to make computing accessible for all students on campus. And so we're thinking of this as the next generation, making AI accessible for all students on campus. What are some of the, the research questions or issues that are keeping it from being readily deployable? Um, so I, I would actually uh, say 
I would actually say that it's not so much about research questions so much as just getting resources and actually putting together. It's more about engineering than it is necessarily about solving basic uh, um, questions. And it's also educating ourselves and educating everybody on campus as to what's out there and how to use it. Hmm, interesting. And um, do, like, do you have a, a few strategies in mind? Uh, well, I have a team of software engineers who are helping me strategize around this. Um, we're trying to figure out uh, what are the best ways to build a platform for campus. We're trying to figure out what people's needs are. Um, I've been traveling around campus and talking to lots of people and, and, and faculty and students in their labs to understand what problems they're struggling with that we might be able to help with. So at a place like MIT, people generally aren't like opposed to AI, but in the, in the larger world, um, you could face some kind of backlash? So I think there's, so that's right. Um, I think there's a couple of different reasons for that. Um, one is we don't really understand what AI can and cannot do in certain ways. Um, and so that creates some questions about safety. Um, I think another uh, issue is that we've seen AI tools be deployed in ways that were not great. Um, so uh, a good example of the second case is where uh, Amazon tried to learn a model of who would likely be a good hire, and they failed to account yeah. for gender bias, and so that was a problem. And, and also, in the first case, a good example of not understanding what AI can and cannot do, um, we've seen some failures. Uh, the Tesla Autopilot is a clear example of that system not knowing its own limitations, the driver not knowing its limitations, and so somebody died. And then a third concern that people have is, is AI going to put a lot of large people out, out of, large number of people out of work? Mm -hmm. So MIT is um, uh, concerned about all three of those things. So in the first case, Alexander Madry and others are leading efforts into really get an, a, a good science of explainable AI. On the second uh, topic, Melissa Nobles, uh, uh, who's the Dean of the School of Humanities and Social Sciences, Joy Ito, who's the Director of the Media Lab, Julie Shaw in Air Astro, they're starting to uh, gather together a group of people to really look at the issues of ethics. And there are other people also involved who uh, um, uh, uh, more than just those three. Um, then on that last issue, how is AI going to be um, is there a concern that AI could start putting people out of work? Uh, MIT is very interested in the future of work. I think it is unlikely that AI alone is going to put a large number of people out of work in the long run because we've not seen we've seen major technological upheavals in society over mm -hmm. the last you know millennia, and certainly the nature of work has changed. But there has always been work, and I think there always will be work. There are some short-term transients, so I don't want to pretend that there aren't going to be people impacted in their workplace by AI, but in the grand scheme of things, there will always be work for everybody. You talked a little bit about um, the science of making it explainable. Yeah. Uh, are there certain aspects of artificial intelligence that like, will just not be interpretable to humans, or do you think it will always be possible? A thing that I've come to realize recently is that it's really hard to define whether something is interpretable or not to humans. And, and I mean that in a very concrete way. There is no one person who knows how to build a skyscraper. Skyscrapers get built all the time, but there is no one person where you can say to them, go and build a skyscraper, and that person knows how to do every single thing. Because that person would have to know the building codes. They'd have to know, you know electricity, plumbing, material science, architecture, etc. So it's remarkable to me that we collectively can do it, and yet we have no idea how to do it. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very possible that 
AI systems may have some of that property as well, is that we do find that we can always find somebody who can explain any one part of it, but nobody knows how the entire thing actually, you know, is built and constructed and operates, et cetera. Interesting. Um, what are some ways, so you obviously have a lot of experience with this, what are some ways that you use artificial intelligence in your uh, your research with your research group? At sure. It? So I have kind of two thrusts to my research group um, that, that feel very different, but they actually share a lot of core technical challenges. Um, I've, uh, for most of my um, career at MIT in the Department of Aeronautics and Astronautics, I've been very interested in making smarter drones. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, when I first started at MIT, drones were just RC aircraft. You know, they had no onboard sensors. They never had onboard computing. Um, it absolutely required a pilot standing on the ground to actually fly the thing around. And then over time, we've seen drones get computers, get sensors, etc. And uh, but so the level of autonomy that we see in commercially available drones still isn't that high. They can do GPS waypoint navigation. They can do a little bit of collision avoidance. Uh, Skydio, which is a company that's spun out of my lab, um, that has a higher level of autonomy in terms of automatic path planning around obstacles, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but they certainly can't carry out complicated missions, and they're not very reliable. I'm very interested, and they're also very much at the mercy of GPS. I'm very interested in the technologies that are required to let a drone fly around without GPS in cluttered, possibly indoor environments, carry out useful tasks, and not hit, hit things. Um, so we use a lot of machine learning to learn perceptual models from mm-hmm. camera data. Uh, we do a lot of uh, statistics and probabilistic inference so these vehicles can know where they are as, from sensor data. Um, and we do also a lot of machine learning that allow the vehicles to know how to fly and choose good and bad trajectories. Um, so that's half my group. The other half of my group is more in terms of human-robot collaboration. Mm-hmm. So we've done a lot of work in how robots can learn from data how to understand what people mean when they give instructions to robots. So I've had robots that have learned how to follow directions, robots that have learned how to assemble things from natural language instruction. Uh, and we're getting very interested in uh, actually how can robots reason at a much higher level about the world around them. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason why robots are really stupid, uh, unfortunately, right now is because they think at very low levels in terms of geometry and physics and, and not much else. But when you and I think about even this room that we're in, we're not thinking about the chairs as like a series of cylinders and flat surfaces. We think of the chair as a distinct entity that has a purpose that we know how to interact with. So can we give robots that kind of understanding as well? And we're trying to, again, bring the kind of uh, reasoning that has characterized AI in terms of probabilistic inference um, and also learning from data, uh, uh, machine learning and deep learning to actually build models that allow robots to reason out the world on a higher level. Mm-hmm. So in those two thrusts, you kind of have different types of robots that you're dealing yep. with, assume, but you also have different things that they are trying to tell about the world. So how does that affect which, or like what sensors do you have in the two cases? Yep. How do those? So uh, while it's true, they're very different types of robots and they designed to do very, very different types of things. The algorithms at core are very similar in terms of inference from sensor data and, um, recognizing that data is going to be noisy and how do you average out the noise in order to get a consistent interpretation? How do you learn new concepts? How do you plan efficiently, et cetera? So those sort of technical nuggets or those technical challenges weave themselves through all the applications in my lab. Um, But to your question about sensors, uh, they do tend to have different sensors. The air vehicles for... um, So I come come from... Even though I'm in Aero Astro, I come from a ground vehicle heritage and it's 
pretty reasonable to say that one of the big enablers of successful ground robots, such as self-driving cars, has been very accurate ranging, so laser rangefinders. Yeah. And uh, for a long t uh, time, I was able to show that you could put a laser rangefinder on a quadrotor and get a lot of the same intelligence out that we were seeing on ground vehicles. Um, I, the problem with the lasers is that, I mean, they're perfectly safe, but they're heavy and expensive. Um, and so I'm uh, lately gotten very interested in seeing how much we can do with a single forward-facing monocular camera. So just one eye looking forward, uh, can you still navigate, find, uh, track your position in the world, and and detect obstacles and not hit them and plan useful mm -hmm. paths? And we're starting. My group is we're starting to have some success in that. Um, and then for the other the human robots working together, um, uh, again accurate ranging is highly useful. We have been using depth cameras, so like RGBD cameras, uh, the Intel RealSense, the Microsoft Connect, et cetera. We have, I've pushed in that case the focus on a single lightweight sensor because um, our attention is elsewhere in the problem right now. But it would be nice to bring those sensor packages together a little mm -hmm. more. For the monocular camera, it seems like it is making your life as difficult as yes. possible. <laughs> is, the, is the point that if you can master it, then you can add more sensors and get even better? Or is the point that to, to minimize the hardware on board or to like, what is the point? So um, it's a great question. And uh, if I were building a product, I would certainly not advocate for a single forward facing camera. But one thing I think is clear is that we as a community don't really understand what it means to navigate with just one camera. And it's been instructive for me. So things that I thought would be hard are, uh, turned out not to be that hard, and I did not see coming the things that turned out to be hard. So what did I think would be hard? Um, when you are estimating your position and trying to understand obstacles around you, you need to track features. So basically need to detect in the camera image from time t to time t plus one, uh, you need to correspond which bits of the world match uh, in, in the two camera images. And if you can correspond those, then you can recover you know, uh, your position, you can recover some of the depth as well. And I thought it'd be really hard to track features, and that turned out to not be as hard. Um, uh, what did turn out to be really hard is the fact that it's a very narrow field of view. Yeah. So you, know, uh, you can't see very much of the world, and you have to turn your head, metaphorically speaking, quite a bit. Um, that's a hassle. <laughs> and uh, But something that turned out to be really good is that um, if you have a stereo camera, two eyes like we have in our head, uh, and you know the distance between the eyes, then it becomes very easy to recover depth in the scene. But how far away you can recover the depth of something is a function of how far apart the cameras are. Mm -hmm. so, so that's called the baseline. The longer the baseline, the wider the space between the cameras, the further you can actually recover range. Uh, humans can only range out to a about, I think it's five meters um, with any kind of accuracy. So you, you can range quite accurately out to one meter, essentially to your fingertips. And then you can range reasonably well to five meters and then it you know, falls apart after that. And that's because your eyes are so close together. You can do the same effect with a monocular camera, basically just doing stereo in time. Mm -hmm. And so if you can accurately do that kind of stereo in time, then you can recover the range to pixels over arbitrary long baselines just by waiting longer. Uh, so, you, so I'm taking the, the range to the, the scene and from the images at time t and t plus one, you could choose to take the range to, uh, from the images at time t and t plus 100. And so if you're moving during that time, yeah. and you can have arbitrary long baseline, all of a sudden you can range really long distances uh, in ways that I really hadn't anticipated. Mm -hmm. Your accuracy isn't gonna be great. 
Um, but you don't need your accuracy to be uh, all that good if you're ranging far away. All you need to know is there's an obstacle there. It's about 100 meters away. Let's not drive straight at it yeah. or fly straight at it. And so that turned out to be something uh, that I hadn't really appreciated. I mean, in hindsight, it's relatively obvious, but it's just it's, you know, so it's think learning about how to use a monocular camera for navigation has been instructive for me. Interesting. So you've, you've, you've talked about using kind of recreating stereo via temporal. Yep. Have you tried or thought about trying um, recreating stereo via like multi-agents? Uh, synthetic aperture. Yeah. Uh, I have not. Or distributed synthetic aperture, I guess. Yeah. I, so I have not done that, uh, but I am starting to think about it. Interesting. Um, and uh, part of the reason why I have not ever thought about it before is because I've never uh, ventured into multi-vehicle systems. One robot seemed like enough trouble for one <laughs> lifetime. Um, but I am starting to get interested in, in multi-vehicle systems. And so I think it is reasonable for us to want to do that. in the, uh, Especially if you're limiting each vehicle yeah, to kind of one exactly. sensor. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so, you, so in both of these realms where you have your, your flying vehicles and you have your human interacting vehicles, yeah. there's a lot of uncertainty. Yes. In one case, it's kind of the you just don't know what the environment is, and in another case, it's you're dealing with a person. Yep. Which in which which of those uncertainties is harder to deal with? Oh, the people. People are terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Populated environments, have, uh, yeah, create tremendous uncertainty and and, and people. So, um, you know, how they, do you deal with that? Well, so operationally it's really you know if you're if you're putting a robot into a factory it's really hard and the people are a source of all kinds of trouble uh from a scientific slash engineering perspective um i don't think we have good answers so mm -hmm. i uh, i was at a workshop a couple of years ago with some cognitive psychologists and we were trying to talk about how robots and humans should work together and cognitive psychologists are bringing their ideas and, sort of and we were using the word model a lot yeah and uh my, my friend Florian, who we were co-organizing the workshop with, said, okay, let, let's just define what we mean by model. And so I said, okay, uh, well, a model is a control system. So you have states and you have actions and you have rewards and maybe discount factor, maybe you have observations and so you have, and you have transition probability, you have a dynamics. And so you can write down a bit behavior of a person in this way. And the cognitive psychologist is like, what is <laughs> that? <laughs> and I tried to explain it like, where's the context? Where's the history? Where's what the person's thinking? I was like, no, no, you don't, all that stuff is complicated. <laughs> we don't put stainless. that in. No, you never, you never. <laughs> like, but that's, that's the thing that really affects what, how people behave. And, and if you don't model that, then you, you will, will have no, if you don't capture that in your model, you will not have a useful model. And so that was super interesting to me because how do I bring, so let's just think about you, you and I interacting. Um, I bring some expectations to bear because uh, of culture and situation. You're at our box uh, conference. Um, I bring some more expectations to bear because we've known each other for a little while uh, um, uh, when you were at MIT and, and I'm at MIT. Um, but then there's yet more context that I have no access to. Uh, and I don't know how to put any of that into a robot system. Yeah. And we need to figure that out. Yeah. Do you, so back in the beginning of this conversation, we talked about like artificial intelligence and combining disciplines and understanding what the actual human brain is doing to replicate it into our, yep. into our models as we call them. But um, do you think that we'll be able to use that knowledge to estimate what our humans are doing and get rid of some of that uncertainty? It's an interesting question. Um, I don't know. 
Um, and I, I think that is really where cognitive science probably needs to tell us more. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, just as another another example, uh, uh, Josh Tenenbaum in, in Brain and Cognitive Sciences at MIT has been advocating that we should really understand the cognitive development cycle of a child and try and replicate that. In our robots? In our robots. What, you know, do you need a robot that acts like an 18-month-old child? Probably not. <laughs> but if you understood how humans acquired knowledge and, and reasoned about goal intent and uh, errors and all that things, um, and, and you might be able to capture very useful capabilities in your robot um, uh, by, by understanding that. Mm-hmm. What are some of the... Um, the most challenging aspects of, of capturing semantics in your robots? Um, so I have a very prosaic answer uh, and then a richer answer. But the prosaic answer is that to capture semantics, you need to be able to process your camera images um, a lot. And uh, you need to be able to do object recognition and scene segmentation, etc. And we don't have readily available computers that can do that with today's algorithms in anywhere near real time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't even, we can barely do object recognition for just a couple of objects in real time. And so just, you know, our algorithms are very, very inefficient and they require a huge amount of computing and they don't work in real time. So that is just kind of a prosaic answer. It's like, if I want semantics, I can't <laughs> do much because my computer's too slow or my algorithm's too slow or, or some version in between. Um, but I would say the more richer question is, we actually don't know what semantics are for yet. So. In a, in a robot, you, you typically do have semantics of some kind. You might have like a control system and an estimator and a motion planner that's helping the robot move around the world and, and do things. You probably have something sitting on top of that called often called a task executive that's basically deciding deciding what the next task is that the robot should do. Then it gives the, turns the task into goal and gives the motion planner and off you go. That task executive that describes sort of this high-level set of tasks you want your robot to do is almost always hand-coded by an engineer or a graduate student and it's always the thing that breaks because you didn't actually capture all of the semantics of the world that you care about. And mm-hmm. so we don't know what makes good semantic representations and how to derive them for the task. Um, and we also don't know where they come from in the brain. Where do symbols come from in the brain is another question that I mentioned Josh and Tommy Paggio uh, at BCS are interested in. And so I think there's a real uh, converging of a need from the engineering side to better understand semantics and, and symbols. And there's a strong interest from the biology side that I, that to go back to the thing we talked about earlier in terms of the quest, is kind of why the quest exists. Yeah. Do you think it is our computers or our algorithms that are most holding us back from achieving real time right now? It's both. It's Where do like, you think we're closer? Uh, I think it's, so uh, if you look at the power consumption of the computers, the power consumption is, you know, um, so I, I, I7 is something like, um, I think 120 watts at full, at full throttle CPU. Your brain is about 60 watts. So the computer is, is expending power at twice the rate that your brain is expending power for way less actual com- computational result. Mm-hmm. Um, so clearly the computer, so, so the, the computer is inefficient, don't get me wrong, uh, but the algorithms are probably the greater source of inefficiency. Any ideas on what we can do about that? Well, this thing, so I think understanding <laughs> how the brain does it is a good good oh. starting point. All right. Thanks, Lily. Thank you. And that's all from us for today. But if you haven't had enough yet, there's plenty more to read, see, and hear on our website at robohub.org 
forward slash podcast. And if you've seen or heard about something cool or exciting in the world of robotics and tech, and you'd like to hear more about it on our podcast, why not get in touch with your suggestion? We're always happy to hear from our listeners, whether it's feedback or questions or suggestions for future episodes. Just email our president, Audro, at audro.nash at robohub.org. And we'll be back in around two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. AI with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics.